Welcome to Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the personalities that shape it. This week I spoke with Abdul Abbasi and Greg Rosborough of the New York clothing brand Abbasi Rosborough. Abbasi Rosborough has been a brand I've been watching for the past few years, but this past fashion week when they debuted their Fall Winter 18 collection, I lost my mind. It was beautiful. You'll hear me say this a little later on the pod, but I honestly didn't know how to figure them out. I kept saying their clothing was futuristic, but they disagreed. They're the clothing of today, 2018, and after talking with them more about it, I agree. Let's do it. And I'm, gonna, I'm totally going to leave this in because I don't know how to like, pronounce anyone's names, but it's Abasi Rosebro. Abasi Rosebro. Close enough. Respect. Abasi Rosebro. <laughs> yes, sir. So no, no roses. Ross. I don't know. The, back throw in, the Rosens, back in the Scotland, Rose. they probably said it was like Roseborough, or I think it's actually R O X officially in Scotland, like okay. Roxborough. But yeah. my ancestors, whoever came to America, said Rosborough with like a like a Z sound almost. Anyway, it doesn't really yeah. matter. But well, it is. Greg and Abdul, I am so grateful and happy to get have you guys on the pod. Oh yeah! Cheers, man. Thanks for yeah. having us. Thank Thrilled you. Thrilled to be here and hanging out with you. Yeah, we're in your beautiful apartment in Soho, which is also, I guess, the showroom. Showroom, office, studio. Uh, studio, shipping location. It's everything. It's <laughs> as needed. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Podcast center. Podcast center. Yeah. The new, the new <laughs> podcast studio. Um, so before we dive too, too deep into this stuff, um, you guys started this brand a few years ago, right? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. but the other month you had your men's fashion week show which I would argue every single person that I know who's like in the fashion industry and then people who don't even, who are just kind of like lurkers and think they're in the industry, but they're not, <laughs> were obsessed with your show. And they're like, wow. best thing was, um, was the Abbasi Rosbro show. Yeah. Right. Rosbro show. Yeah. You can just say AR for shit. Yeah. Yeah. AR is what we say, yeah. <laughs> but they were, they were, everyone was saying like, it is the most next level in terms of the music, in terms of the, the look, in terms of the aesthetic, like, Basically, people said you guys were the future and are the future of fashion. Wow. wow. Oh, well, so thank the you, bar everyone is who said that. super, super high. Yeah. No pressure. I we can deliver on those ideas. <laughs> so I, I kind of want to jump in a little bit. How, how did this collaboration start? And so, Abdul, I had seen you and met you before because you were, you were the EG guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it, I don't know how far back you want to go, but basically... Um, Greg and I met at design school at FIT for the menswear design program. Okay. And, um, you know, in, in school, you're meant to do these presentations of mock collections and kind of talk about inspiration and things like that. So I think Greg and I were one of the few people that took it seriously. So we always had that common bond about like working hard. We'd both come from, he'd come from an undergrad program. So he'd already had a few years under his belt. I came from the military. So I was already a bit older than everyone in my class. So Wait, hold on. I just want to pause you. Right oh, now. yeah. You came from the military? Yeah. Can curveball, we segue curveball, that yeah. real quick? What's <clears throat> Yeah. Um, so basically, you know, the American dream, you're 18, you don't have money for college. So you join the military. So Joining military. I don't know the, if that's the American dream. <laughs> well, <laughs> it was. It was in like the yeah, 40s. Serve your family in the, the country. Um, yeah, so I joined, I joined the military for the GI Bill, and I spent eight years actually traveling the world. So I lived in Korea. I lived in um, Germany. I lived in Holland. I lived on the West Coast, the South. I was everywhere. And, you know, when I was in high school, I was always thinking about design and art. I was, you know, always sketching and doodling and whatever. And when I went to Europe, that was the first time I saw sort of men embrace fashion in a way that I never saw in the West. Like, you know, guys weren't afraid to take chances. And 
I saw it as a form of art, like wearable art or tangible art. So as soon as my enlistment was done, I was like, you know what? Like, I want to go to fashion school. So I applied to FIT, which had the only menswear program in the U.S. at the time. Right. Only school I applied to, just went there, did the interview, got in. And then, yeah, basically, Greg and I were in the same class. Um, and then we kind of, a few years, just to... Here, wait, to, while we're in the midst of a military okay. segue, let's Please. not leave that segue quite yet. <laughs> okay. Uh, two questions, Sergeant Abbasi. Sure. <laughs> to, uh, wait, hold on. Is it Sergeant? Oh, yeah. I was a Sergeant. That's really Random, awesome. right? I'm, I'm like, <laughs> oh, I'm seriously floored. Because I was like trying to do all my research on you guys. That's not in there, by the yeah, way. Yeah, man. Hey, that's, pre, that's pre-Google. That's pre-internet. No, but <laughs> Tell them what you did for the military. I think that's Okay, fair enough. Too. Thanks for that. Um, so I worked on Apache helicopters. So I, I repaired missile systems and target navigation. So it was t- the furthest thing away from fashion. Um, but yeah, that was, that was my... And, uh, then, and then the other question while we're in the segue is uh, tell them how you learned to sew. Oh. And who with? <laughs> <laughs> you got all you the got goodies. You got the hype man over here. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> tell them, Abdul. Okay. So... Um, um, so basically, I w- I'm in Holland. I'm working for NATO. It's like a nine to five job. So on the weekends, yeah, as you do, as you do, you know, and, you know, I got into fashion. So I was like, you know, I'm gonna get a, fas- a sewing machine. So I go to the neighborhood sort of, you know, quilting store and there's a sewing machine. I buy it. And right above it on the bulletin board, they have these um, ads for sewing uh, classes. So I was like, I got a sewing machine. I don't have to sew. Like, so I contacted it. I ended up learning how to sew it with a bunch of middle aged Dutch women, like, <laughs> in the countryside that's so awesome so i show up there the only guy the only american and this woman i think her name was teeny or something like that super sweet like her english was okay and she helped me learn how to sew oh my god yeah. that's so, amazing and the irony is my interview at fit i brought a garment that i had designed and she had sewn for me that was the garment that i showed um the professor in order to get into the into the um into the class Oh my god! Yeah, so that's how dedicated and passionate I was. That's <laughs> I like those. I like those backstories. And Greg, your background—you were at RL for a long time, right? <clears throat> yeah. So um, I, I'm from Arizona. I played basketball. I went. I studied um, entrepreneurship and marketing in my undergrad at Arizona. Um, but uh, um, when I was 18, we had a basketball tournament in New York for Thanksgiving. Um, I think it's the. Uh, Jim, uh, no, Coach B Classic or Jimmy V Classic or something like that. It was at Madison Square mm-hmm. Garden. Anyway, all the guys on the team wanted to stay in like the hotel b- before and after the game and just play video games. And I just, I'd never been to New York before. I was so eyes wide open here. Um, and uh, I wanted to just be out in the city and explore. And like, I'm one of the people who you either love the energy of the city or you hate it. And I, I wanted to be out there and absorb it. So I was just walking around. And um, at the time, the best clothes that I owned, like my fanciest shit was probably j crew or banana republic or maybe nice. structure the dawson pant yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so then so i walk into bergdorf and you just sort of like realize everything you know is just poor you know like everything that you've seen clothing wise is just shit kind of um mass in a way and so it was the first time i ever put on anything that was designed and had really nice fabrications and concept behind it and then after that point i said okay i need to figure out a way to get back to new york and then through undergrad, I just kind of worked to get back here and then um, applied for um, FIT, met Abdul. And then uh, my goal when I moved to New York from Arizona was I want to work for Ralph Lauren. Like to me, he was um, the American classic master. And like that seemed like some kind of rite of passage as a designer. Yeah. And so uh, they had this call for interns during our first year uh, for the Ralph Lauren Purple Label, like one intern. And it, I took it competitively. You know, I really wanted that thing. And, um, 
and went after it and got the internship. It was a year long. And so got to meet like all the tailors who make the suits by hand, um, who'd been making suits like since they were 13 and now they're in their seventies. And so learned all about like deeper than FIT could even teach me the history of tailoring and things like that. And then, uh, and then got hired as a, as a designer after I graduated and was there for three years. Holy cow. So you guys meet there, but obviously you don't just meet and say, hey, let's start a clothing company, right? I mean, because you were were at Engineered Garments as... Yeah. So after after I graduated, I got hired as an assistant designer for Engineered Garments, and I was working there. And at the time, I didn't really know who they were, but, you know, it was a job. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, and and honestly, that was probably the best thing that could have happened, um, you know, career-wise. Um, and then after working as an assistant designer for two years, they had opened the store in the, um, in the lower level. <clears throat> and so they asked me, hey, they were like, do you want to go and work in a store? And I was like, well, I've never worked at a store. And Daiki, I'll never forget like, this. Perfect. <laughs> well, no, no. He, he said, you know what? You will learn the most about design by actually working in a store. He said, you'll get to see how people sort of interact with clothing, what they gravitate to, what, how things fit. Um, you learn everything. He said, I'm in his office and I'm in a bubble. He said, in the stories where you really see how the clothing come al- comes alive. So I went oh, wow. down to manage the store and I was there for th- three or four years. And then um, I think that's when Greg had, you know, been at uh, Ralph Lauren for a while. And yeah. he had grown f- frustrated with, you know, going back to the archives and trying to reimagine things that were in the past. And he gave me, a, he, he sent me an email. He's like, hey, Abdul, like, it's been a while, but I'm gonna have this idea. Like, you know, do you want to talk about it? And and that's, that's kind of how we started. That's sick. So, because I would say, looking at, you know, your guys' clothing and stuff and seeing the show, um, the last brand I would ever connect it to would be Ralph Lauren. But I mean that as a compliment and the fact that your clothing, it looks, it's like futuristic, but I would say really respectful in the sense of like the construction is fantastic. I mean, I've seen some of the pieces up uh, in person. I mean, how would you try to, it sucks because every single person that you're ever going to talk to wants to put you in a box, mm-hmm. but if you're having to put yourself in the box, like what would you guys even sort of categorize yourself? Because I mean, even the influences are all over the map, it, but it's really beautiful. Yeah. yeah um, thank you. Thanks. <clears throat> uh, well, the, the, the thing that sparked the idea in my head um, to, to contact him, like the reason I was like, I need to talk to someone about this idea and it, and it needs to be Abdul. Like there was no one else. For some reason, that's just how I internally felt like my gut told me that. But uh, basically when I was talking to these tailors, when I was an intern still, I said to them, because uh, we were studying tailor, tailoring at FIT, and I just said to them, what do you think tailoring is going to look like in 50 years? Oh. Um, just kind of like, you know, like a, a lunchtime chat and they, <laughs> and, <laughs> with, with tailors, you know? Yeah, And uh, they said, they like laughed at me. And they're like, well, the suit's never going to change. It's perfect. Because like I was making the same suit when I was 13 and now I'm 70. It's never changed. Like besides the lapel width changing or the button stance altering by millimeters. Yeah. Like nothing has changed and it will never change. And so to me as a design student, I was very frustrated by that because I thought, how is my entire life going to go by and no one will even come up with like all of humanity will not come up with a better idea than the current suit. Like and we all know that there's complaints about the suit. We don't want to wear it. We're living in a casualization of clothing right now because mm-hmm. people are resisting against things that are uncomfortable. So right. that stuck in my head. And then, uh, and then I was on an airplane a couple, like maybe four years later. And at the beginning of the flight, this um, uh, well-dressed flight attendant male uh, guy was helping a woman to take her bag from the floor to the overhead compartment. And he got his, um, 
his hands about to shoulder height and he couldn't reach up any higher to put the bag up because his jacket was restricting his arms. And so that, I was just sitting a couple rows back watching this. And then that was when I said to myself, okay, like that's, a, that's actually a problem. That's a design flaw. Mm-hmm. It's not just like a critique on silhouette. It's actually like an issue. And so I just said to Abdul, or that was why I called him. I said, hey, we studied tailoring. We know how to make patterns. You take, you know, you have this military background. I was a basketball player of these, you know, we have the, he has utilitarian. I have more functional ideas. What if like we just took it upon ourselves to innovate the suit for the 21st century and, and um, for these times that we live in and, and where you're no longer, like where you do need to put a bag in an overhead compartment or you need to ride the subway and grab the bar. Or you need to drive a car and put your hands forward or pick up your, your newborn baby yeah. Um, yeah. Or, or whatever, or go to the grocery store. Like if your suit or your clothes in general are not moving with you, then they're working against yeah. you. And then how can you take that little nugget of an idea and then develop it into something. And so that was kind of the impetus of just talking. And then we were just making patterns at nights and weekends and having fun with it for the first like year, pretty much before we did any business stuff or anything. Wow. I mean, that's fascinating because I think the reason, one of the reasons why that people don't really wear suits anymore outside of the fact that it's not the the trend of, you know, 2010 or, or anything is that, yeah, it's not the most functional piece of clothing. And I've had people on this podcast who are like, no, it is the most comfortable piece of clothing, but that's because, and God bless them, I'm jealous, the suits that they're wearing were handmade for them. I would be shocked if the flight attendant said, no, 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 (laughs) this was handmade for me in Naples, or, you know, or this is a Karachetti suit, you know? And so there's, there's no real sort of evolution there. And also it can be yeah, it can look kind of stale because when when I look at your guys' stuff, it looks like it's straight out of like Blade Runner. I mean, it's 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 amazing. Thanks. Thank you. Well, Thank that's, you. that's a great compliment. I mean, and so that my frustration <clears throat> with Ralph Lauren and uh, was that so you as a designer have to design. I think we did four seasons, but sometimes they're throwing an additional winter collection, so I have to do like six to eight seasons per year. Oh, wow. And every season at the beginning of the season, the design process was okay, everybody go out, find amazing vintage clothes, bring it back, and we'll talk about it, and then we'll kind of turn this into an idea under, under some concept, which might mm-hmm. be like uh, New England, you know, um, I don't know, shooting or something, or <laughs> sure. like what, whatever it might be. And, we, so and this is Purple Label that you're at? This is Purple Label, but also then it like, late, Purple Label was like, okay, you're at St. Moritz skiing, <laughs> translate that into, you know, you just go find like cashmere sure. coats, and then that was like the, you know. But then it, but later I was with the denim team. And so we'd have to go find like all this amazing denim around the country, Levi's that had been dug up out of barns that was, you know, a hundred years old and things like that. Mm-hmm. But, um, but after being there for three years as a, as a designer and one year as an intern, so four total, I just basically said to myself, I cannot keep going back to the archive and finding fresh things. I, I did it for the first few years because vintage is new. But then at some point I had to like turn my gaze forward. I couldn't keep looking back and in, in designing. I had to, and that's why I basically said to him is like, this whole thing is about forward vision, not looking back. So, of course, we respect the heritage of tailoring, shirt making, American made, um, all the, like all those things. So, the craftsmanship is there, which is a respect to that. But uh, everything is meant to be forward looking. Yeah. Well, so if that's what you guys were doing in design, like where do you even start when, like you were saying, all the design, you know, beginnings are about looking back, like. What, what were the first things that you guys wanted to do when you were designing? The well, collection? I mean, I think one thing that Greg and I try to do as well is we try not to look much at fashion. Like, I think 
everything has, has changed and evolved. If you look at, you know, cell phone technology, if you look at um, buildings, if you look at cars, all these things evolved and no one really, so uh, this is other bone to have to pick with you actually. Whenever with people, me? Well, not okay. with you. With and podcasts other, in general. No, okay. with, with, with people that speak about our clothes, which A, please I sincerely thank you. But whenever someone says our clothing is futuristic, I always kind of think to myself like, is your iPhone futuristic? Like it's only futuristic in comparison because everything else is taken from the past, right? No, I hear but, you, man. At our, me, bro. Our, I get it. But but you know, but and, and and no diss. But what I'm trying to no, say no, is no. that that's how we create newness. We look at other products. We look at other areas and disciplines of design, and we realize that like everything that we have created is basically a remix and amalgamation of things that already exist. Like we took a tailored suit jacket, but instead of taking a Western influence we took an eastern influence so it has more of a kimono aspect but then we took an activewear element from you know ribbing and we put it underneath the arm so it's mapped so it's strategic so it allows for movement we took the horsehair from the traditional english tailoring but we put it on the you know we we exposed it so it's deconstructed so it's like these are all ideas that already exist we just remixed it and made them today like so the future is now if if we're talking about futurism right, right? the future is now because it doesn't exist and Blade Runner, I love it, but it's that that doesn't exist. We're in 2018, and these are clothes for 2018. And when we make our next collection, it'll be clothing for 2019. Everyone else is making clothing that's 20, 30, 40 years in the past. We're making clothing for now. So that's how we that's how we approach our design. It's like, what do we need now? What is inspiring us now? What is our daily activity? Who are you know, that's how we kind of embrace True. the design. And I think inspiration is all around you. As long as you're observing, you know, so it can be from fine art, it can be from graphic design, it can be from environmental design, industrial design. We love Apple, we love, you know, Jonathan Ivey, but we also love Dieter Rams and, you know, Zaha Hadid. And like, there's all these design titans, these minds that are all over the place, but they're not necessarily in fashion. So right. you do yourself a disservice if you keep digging into the archives to find that old Levi's or that old suit jacket and remake it when you can look at a building. And just use a little bit more creativity and say, how can we integrate some of these design lines or this form language into a piece of clothing? Because essentially, our garments, our architecture, they're, they, they're volumes that masses inhabit, right? So a building and a suit jacket are the same thing. If you want to, it's just a matter of scale. Yeah. So you can take design ideas from Rem Koolhaas or Zaha Hadid or any of these people and integrate it into a suit jacket or into a bomber or even into a hoodie. If you look at Vetmon and all these people, like... They're making giant volumes of things we already ex- that already exist. Like if you make a flight jacket ten times too big, it's still a flight jacket, but now you create a new volume for, and now it looks fresh to someone. Well, you, you know what I'm saying? No, I hear you. Yeah. And first off, I appreciate the correction because for me, I see your stuff and I want to find a way to connect. But I've never. I, um, that's the thing is I haven't seen that sort of stuff before, so mm-hmm. I have no way to. I want to put it into a box so I can understand it. You know, everything that's been put in front of me, there's. There's history to it. There's a background. Fair, fair enough. But the, ha- but the history is linear exactly. in the sense that, well, this evolved and this evolved and this evolved. And you just pulled four or five different cultures from four or five different time periods and you put that all together. Exactly. And I agree, that is very much what is happening right now, um, not just um, from design, but even like politics and technology. Everything is just kind of like smushed together because mm-hmm. we're also in this world where you can instantly access exactly. almost everything. Exactly. So I guess my, my question would be, what you said, I would argue, hasn't been done before, it, at least in clothing that mm. I'm aware of. Right. So how do you even start in that instance? Because 
in the traditional school, I'm sure they're like, well, you, you go back and you look at this. I mean, how would you incorporate some of the pattern making stuff that you learn into what you're doing right now? Well, <clears throat> so it, it was, well, I, it was difficult, but it was like a great challenge. So we, mm-hmm. uh, you, so we learned how to make a suit jacket in school perfectly as per Italian or English standards, like by the book, by the millimeter, how to measure someone and things like that, how to measure shoulder slopes and integrate that into shoulder, you know, the shoulder pads and, and all that kind of stuff and hand stitch everything. So that's all great to know. But then if you want to innovate, then you kind of have to, you kind of have to know that, but then throw that all out because that's not how you're going to do the futuristic stuff or, or forward looking things. So one thing that we did, because we didn't even know how to make the pattern pieces that we were conceptualizing, like in our, in our conversations. So one thing we did, for example, was, um, had Abdul put on a skin tight uh, t-shirt, long sleeve t-shirt, and basically had him just like swing his arms around and go up and down and find like the points within the fabric that started pulling like as he was moving. And then I just traced those all off with a Sharpie. And then we could cut out those pieces and lay them out flat and say, okay, what is this? Like, this is some new panel that we didn't even know existed, but now we can take that idea, integrate it back into a suit, do a prototype, see if it works. Okay, it didn't work, but what can we do to improve it? So it's just kind of this you start a whole new feedback loop, basically. And that was kind of how we tried it. And then, and then as you iterate, you learn a lot very quickly. And then, you know, okay, well, this worked on a jacket. So this is how it could work on a shirt. And this is how it can work on a trouser and then a coat. And then you start to develop a form language around this whole new mm-hmm. kind of idea. And it's also like, you know, um, and I always say this, but I think Mother Nature is the greatest designer, right? You mm-hmm. just look outside and you'll see beautiful, elegant design. So a lot of things that we do is, you know, the human body is what we think of first anatomy, right? So if you think about a skeleton as a structure and then you have muscles and ligaments and things push and pull and things have certain motions and things don't, you realize that it's not one homogenous mass, but there's different things that are mapped around the body for different purposes. So when we came up with the suit jacket, we were like, well, everything can't be stiff and woven. Some things have to stretch and, and, and flex and other things need to be solid. So when you start to sort of look at the human body and then start to reverse engineer that into into clothing you start to have parallels so a lot of our seams right like our our, we don't have traditional side seams because the human body has no straight lines so we like to rotate the side seam or the seam from the back all the way to the front so that it encapsulates the body almost like one of your muscles it wraps around so a lot of our stuff is very anatomically derived you know because it makes sense if it's on your body it should mirror your body it's it's a second skin you know yeah. In, in, in a few words. So, so it's like you have to, like you said, you need to learn all the rules and then you have to break them and then create your own set of rules. So Greg and I, we have our, like, our dogmas, our, our set of rules that we do. Natural fibers, you know, because they've evolved over eons. Like, yeah, there's Gore-Tex and there's all these other things, but that wool that that sheep had has been evolved for, you know, millions of years. Like, that works. Mm-hmm. You need to find um, certain colors, look in nature. Like, so there's, 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 there's this whole palette and this whole toolbox and toolkit out there that is Mother Nature. So why not harness that instead of trying to create your own thing? So that's why, when, like I said, futurism is a great you know, point to connect. But we always think about the, the duality between ancient and, or primitive and modern, right? Like you, you look at a lot of things that we do, they could have existed, you know, at the dawn of humanity, like a lot of these, these shapes that we create are very old shapes. Like people say our stuff looks like kimonos and things like that. But yeah. throughout, you know, Central Asia, you'll see similar shapes, you know. But what we did is we just adapted it for now. So the sl- sleeves are slimmer. It's closer to the body. But essentially, it's the, s- the same shape, you know. Right. 
So it's like we're not just going back into the three, 200 years of tailoring in, in, to England. We're going, you know, a thousand years back, you know, and then we're taking that and connecting with an idea that's now. And then that's how you create something new. So when you're making these pieces, a lot of the steps that most designers and companies have to deal with, especially younger ones, is the manufacturing of it. So you're bringing this to whomever is helping you manufacture it. Like, how difficult is that? Because they're like, well, wait a second. Hold on, explain this. That's a great question. So that was one of the big obstacles of this becoming anything from just like a fun project at night to becoming like, okay, we want to try to actually have a business and a brand. And Mm -hmm. it started off. So we took it. What was the guy's name in Bushwick we went to? Oh, Martin Greenfield. Yeah. so we, yeah. we took we took our first prototypes to Martin Greenfield because oh he's, he's, he's the suit yeah. maker extraordinaire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so we thought, you know, this if anybody's going to make the futuristic suit, it is Martin Greenfield, and and that's that. And so we took it to him, and they basically like they they didn't laugh. They're like, we respect what you've done. Like you, there are you know the, there's the hallmarks of tailoring, but then it's in a different way. And they're like, look, we're going to just charge you a shitload of money, and Ugh. it's not going to be any better quality than really anybody else can do it. Um, so we recommend you don't make it here. And, and they said like, God bless you. Like it's a great venture and idea, but <laughs> they just, speed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But they said, uh, they just said, you know, we will charge you literally an astronomical price. No one can even afford these jackets if we make them. But in context, because you know, their system is very like, you know, check this box. If you want a wide lapel, check this box. If you want a ticket pocket, exactly. whatever. So we're kind of doing just, golden fleece over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And no, no disrespect. They're amazing at what they do, but it's like, we're throwing a monkey wrench in that whole situation. Cause we're saying that like, this is, unlike it's very similar to what you're doing but it's totally unlike what you're doing yeah so for them to sort of retool their whole factory they were like it's not it's yeah really we not said how it. you know can you join knit fibers to woven fibers they're like no we don't sew any knit fibers like well the whole premise of this thing is it has knit uh knit fabrics involved so anyway so that kind of we, we washed that and then we kind of went on a, a soul search in um the garment district right just interviewing different factories and seeing um things that they had done because you know you walk in they kind of show you oh we sewed this dress for this person and this jacket for someone else and then you kind of give some people a shot and we've just you know through serendipity you find someone who's like oh this this is very doable and you're, that's the answer you want which mm-hmm. is somebody instead of pushing back and you saying oh yeah we could probably sew this we can have it ready next week to, to show your prototype so we we gave some people a shot and next thing we had um the first kind of i guess official prototypes which were you know not made by like not that we're terrible sewers but they were not professional garments but then you have it made by someone who really is a quite a quality sewer and then it and then that kind of started to become something yeah real. and then you have a starting point and then you can refine it over time you know right yeah because it feels to me that you're the uphill battle that you all you know are unfortunately have to face is is kind of re-educating the entire system mm-hmm. of and in, in buyers and people in fashion to of what you're saying of like yes it is now this is not don't buy this and be like, well, I don't know how I'm going to sell it to my guy. It doesn't say, you know, it doesn't say RAF on it or something right. like that. Because that as, you know, as we were talking about in this sort of futuristic, um, or well, not futuristic, but this, this current society, right, where go. everyone has access to everything, people are building these echo chambers. You know, I mean, you look down, like downstairs at stadium goods and it's like everyone wants to look this very specific way. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, are there any sort of other things that you guys feel that you're trying to do to sort of challenge who that that guy is? Well, hmm. I mean, I think personally that guy's fine. Like, I think Greg and I realize that everything is valuable. Everything can coexist. Mm-hmm. There's there's micro trends all over the place. Whatever. 
Yeah. But you know, at the at the core of it, we believe good design should be for everyone. So the the idea is to sort of change the architecture of clothing, to think about movement when you make a garment. Like I, I think a lot of as you spoke, the the first you know the first garments were tailored to your body. So you went to your tailor, he measured you up and down, everything was precise. Of course, it's going to be flexible, it's going to be movable. But as soon as you start to industrialize that process and you think about the yeah. average sizes of people, average never fits anyone properly, right? So, yeah. Yeah. so it's like what, we does, what we're basically saying is that within that ready-to-wear model, we're creating garments that will fit most people and allow them to be their best selves. You know, it's not bespoke. Like we can do a bespoke for you, that would be great. Oh, you can't. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you know, we're in New York. We can just run you up to a factory. <laughs> but, but we can also say even off the rack, it's going to fit better than anything out there, you know? Yeah. And the guy that's at Stadium Goods and he wants to buy, you know, his matching joggers with his whatever, that's great. Like, he can do that. But he can wear one of our hoodies or he can throw, a, a, you know, um, an arc jacket on top if he needs to go to a date or whatever the heck. So it's still like in, it can be integrated into his, into his wardrobe, you know? That's, so the idea is not to be exclusive or to to say that, oh, the way you dress is wrong and our stuff is right. It's just our stuff gives you an alternative, you know? Right. And kind of like a um, pie-in-the-sky vision for the future of what we, what we are trying to achieve is, you know, if you, like, look back at photos of uh, early 1900s in New York or wherever, mm-hmm. before the suit was widely adopted worldwide, men were wearing frock coats and overcoats, black, heavy summer, winter, all year long with top hats and things like that. And we look back at those photos now and we're like, man, how the hell did they endure that? They must have been so hot. It must have been so uncomfortable. And we want people to look like at our, when our career ha- has come to an end, ho- hopefully not for a while, but uh, <laughs> I think not that season. Later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that people will look back and say how they used to wear those old suits. They, they were so uncomfortable and they were hot and things like that, that, that we will affect change like systematically in a, yeah. in a massive way, yeah. not just like within a f- strict fashion elite niche that only is adopted by 10 people worldwide you know or something like that i think the the vision is meant to be bigger and we love this quote by uh ray and charles eames that were the designers for um herman miller which is they tried to design the best for the most for the least which was the best design for the most amount of people for the least amount of money so it was taking their ethos of also they had you know natural fibers and different things like that but then in and making it available to everyone not just in an elitist um Mm -hmm. you know and also the longest too i mean those eames chairs everyone wants one in their house forever still to this day i mean it's a sign of good design yeah you know for sure um earlier before we started recording you were talking about some of the mentors you have i mean who you know obviously this is it's both of you but there's behind every you know good teacher there's a master behind them encouraging them and teaching them like who, who are those people for you guys yeah I mean, I would say probably Daiki Suzuki of Engineered Garments. Like, it's one of those relationships where it's, um, I'm not going to say Mr. Miyagi, you know, and the Karate Kid, but it's one of those things where... <laughs> but you just did say it. But, but, but you <laughs> so, know what I mean? Like, it's, so I it's, it's one of those things where sometimes you do things, you don't understand why you're doing them until, like, later. Like, I mentioned the store scenario yeah, and things yeah. like that. Um, but I think the way he runs his business and the way Nepenthes runs their business is, um, is just full of integrity, full of authenticity. Like, you know, it's not for everybody, but they do what they do and they do it well. And I, I think they've weathered the storm. And um, they, I think even with their clothing and the way they treat their, you know, their partners and the manufacturers, it's just like mutual respect. Everyone's paid on time. Everyone is treated with, you know, dignity. Um, and they look at each other as like, we're part of a, a big family, like a, a big team. 
So I think Greg and I, when we, we brought that to what we do, I mean, yeah, we're not going to be your, your largest client, but we're going to treat you with respect. We're going to make sure you get paid on time. We're going to, you know, treat the, the sewers with respect because they, they're mm-hmm. the hands that help us create these products. So the thing I learned from him is having integrity, authenticity, and, and bringing soulfulness to the clothing. I think that's been like one thing we really strive to, to create because I think it, I think it transcends. Like I think when that, that end user does pick it up, I think they do get that sense of, wow, like there was love and thought and consideration. This is not just meant to, to me to spend my money on or whatever. This is something that I'm going to cherish. It's a, an heirloom perhaps. So that's, that's a big thing that I learned from, uh, from Daiki. Would you say? Yeah. I mean, um, I have certain quotes in my head from the like Ralph Lauren experience that, you know, that, that I still keep with me, but he of course is not necessarily a mentor literally. Like we, you know, we can't call Ralph or at least if he ends up listening to this, we'd love to call you and talk about it. <laughs> we have a lot of questions, but, um, he had a lot of things that he would say, which is, um, everything is storytelling. I think that's been really, um, important to us to think about. You can't just choose a fabric. You can't just design something cool. You have to pull the full vision together. And so like, um, one thing we, when we were starting off, you know, you, you design your first collection, and you think that magazines are going to want to cover you, which, which of course they don't. Nobody knows who you are. And so we wanted to show what we were, what we were doing in a, in a deeper visual storytelling way. And so um, Abdul had been dabbling in photography at the time. So, you know, I just said, hey, why don't you be the photographer? I'll, I'll be the stylist kind of slash director and we'll go shoot ideas around town with, with the models in the way that we want to be shown. And so um, that was, but that was a lesson from Ralph Lauren is kind of uh, show and tell your stories in a bigger way. It's not, people don't buy clothes to buy clothes. They buy clothes because there's, there's meaning behind them f- mm-hmm. for whatever you, whatever you imbue on it. And so um, we wanted to make sure we did that. And then he always talked about, and this is also from Engineered Garments, you know, you never want to be in fashion because then you'll be out of fashion. Like stay just below the cusp because uh, if you find that you are white hot, then you will find that you're, you're gone, you know, before you know yeah. it. And uh, we've, you know, just in, I've lived, or Abdul and I have lived in New York now, I think 11 years. And, um, you know, when we moved here, our favorite, or my favorite brand in New York was Cloak at the time. And like, I thought, you know, they were going to be the next biggest thing. But, you know, before we were out of design school, I think they had closed and it was, just, and I don't know if they were white hot, but it was just, I remember there was so much attention focus on them. They and that, were definitely white hot. Were they white hot? Okay, oh, yeah. so. I mean, they were like the brand of all brands. I mean, when you get a profile like in the New Yorker. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. That Mm -hmm. that says something. And so, and so you kind of, now you look back and you say, well, what, what happened? Like why they got white hot, but then, but then it was over, you know? And so I think that's a a lesson from Daiki. Like Daiki is not trying to be white hot. Daiki for engineered garments, they want to be consistent, Mm -hmm. you know, doing their thing, bringing newness, but never too far that it's chasing a trend or something like Mm -hmm. that. And I think. Ralph, I know they're having some, you know, some certain struggles with the business at this point, but I think that's a great lesson that they, that's why they're one of the longest running, you know, American uh, clothing businesses. I'm in a behemoth. So anyway, so that's something we've tried to work on is Mm -hmm. how do we, and I hope that we're not getting white hot because you just said we had a great fashion show with all this attention. (laughs) Well, I have a a counter to to what you were saying is because I don't think many brands have the in most cases have the choice of whether or not they're going to be like what you're saying, like white hot. Right. I don't think when, when Geller, you know, and, and um, uh, Prokoyev were making cloak, they were like, we want to be the it brand. They right. were just, I think they were in the same situation that you two are and that 
you want to make good clothes. You want to, you know, you want to have a business with integrity. And and I actually think Cloak and Geller has talked about this on the pod before too. It, Cloak didn't didn't go away because the trend died. Mm-hmm. I, I think there were other issues right, that happened. Right, right. Um, but what you know, what makes brands that just from my opinion, what makes brands stay is you know, eg to talk about them for a second. They have the Bedford jacket, right? Mm-hmm. We all, if you're into engineer garments, you know what the Bedford jacket is. The fabrics change from season to season, but for the most part, it's there. And I feel, for me, it really lowers that barrier of entry because, um, one, it's even though it's a seasonal garment, that I can always get back into it through that piece. I know that it always fits pretty much the same. And, and because of that, like it's not like, say, someone like Raph, in which there's something from that season, and then you're never going to see that again, <laughs> right. ever. Yeah. And I get yeah. it. Like He wants to put it to bed. It's in the past. Sure, I respect that. But for me, as someone who wants to get into the brand and really understand it, I, I can't think of that piece, except like what, like his Stan Smiths, which I mean, that's not really which designed. Which are Stan just, Smiths. Yeah, well, yeah, those <laughs> are Stan Smiths. I just think of like graphic tees, but you're right, they're changing, they're chameleons to the season almost. Exactly. Right. So I, I think, you know, like what you were saying, if, you know, if you're having either hoodies or, or like the, the, the jacket that you're wearing, if there's always something like that. Yeah, for sure. Um, you, you, that, that point of entry is, is easier to, to get to. Mm-hmm. Because if you see a piece that's three years old, I mean, I have EG that's, you know, seven, eight years old, that's a Bedford jacket, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. they'll, they'll do seasons because I went and saw it this past season. They're like, yeah, we didn't do the Dexter pant and we didn't do the CPO shirt. And I was like, why is that? They're like, and eh, we didn't want to. <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, respect. All right. But I think, you know, having those, those pieces, it just, it makes it special. Yeah, and yeah. Um, it, to, to go back, you know, I think, yeah, you guys are probably um, are super, you know, white hot because of, you're new. What you're doing is like what you were saying is unlike anything I've heard of or understand. You're here. You're in New York, which is thank God, you know. Yes, so you're amen. becoming the new face of of New York men's fashion, which is amazing. And I think how you guys ride it out is the fact of staying true to what you said yeah, you're gonna do. Yeah, I mean, we have no choice. We've been <laughs> grinding, you know. And I think, um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm a bit more hesitant to to reveal everything at, at sometimes. No, oh, please, no worries. But but what I mean is that, like, I always, you know, I'm a big fan of the Japanese sort of um, state of mind, the Japanese designers, and I always remember reading interviews about how, like, Comb, you know, uh, you know, Ray Kawakubo started her business maybe in like seventy sixty nine, but then she didn't show in Paris until like eighty or something like. Yeah. Or like Sakai waited fifteen years before she went to Paris, or like. That's right. So it's like. A lot of these brands that are quote unquote new actually have been grinding and refining their process. And I think there's something to be said about embracing obscurity, not saying that, hey, I'm a designer and then jumping out there and saying, hey, look at me. But maybe staying in the, in the you know, trenches and working out your, your design ethos and making sure you know how to produce your collection, figuring out how to um, have that, those core items like you mentioned, like have those repeat carryovers. And to build a strategic business so that when you do show the world, you're ready for whatever may come, you know? And I think that Greg and I, we've been doing this for five years. Like, that wasn't our first time around the rodeo. It was our first show, but we had a lot of time and effort and experience and and failure behind us in order to present that show. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked about everything that we didn't like about shows. We thought it talked about everything we liked about shows. And then we thought about, what about experiences? Like, when everyone is talking about the death of a fashion show, 
the uh, like Greg always says, like you'll always go to a live concert of Radiohead rather than listen to it on Spotify. There's a totally different thing, <laughs> exactly. Right. So yeah. it's like, how do you create that experience? Yeah. You create that experience, then it's gold. So that's what we that's what we did. You know, essentially, we just created that experience, and we were blessed to have friends and family and community gather around. We worked with our old college, you know, um, classmates. We worked with friends of friends, you know, girlfriends, wives. Everyone was involved. Who, who played the music? So the music, so the guitarist is actually my younger brother, who's okay. a world-class guitarist. Yeah. And then um, our good friend, Kalela, who's a um, world-renowned vocalist. And, you know, the irony is that we all knew each other when we were struggling. Like, you know, my brother was at a coffee shop. She was at a call center, you know, <laughs> whatever. But, but you know, the thing is we knew, we all knew that we had talent. We all, we had skill, but we, we had not blossomed yet. So right. my brother had blossomed, Kalela's blossomed, and now Greg and I are blossoming. And we were all available for that moment. And it made it so special. Right. So, so I think that um, speaking to all the designers, not to be preachy or, or creatives, but like take your time, like embrace the obscurity, use this time to perfect your craft. Because when you're in the limelight, like everyone is waiting for, the, for you to fail. Like we mm-hmm. had this great show, thank God, but now the next show has to be even better, right? Or they'd be like, oh yeah, what, what happened to those guys? Like, yeah. you know what I'm saying? No, I, I So it's you. like, and, and, and you know, that's great pressure. And I, Greg and I always have ideas and we always consider things, but the reality is, People just want something new, whether it's us or the next guy. They just want to mm-hmm. see something you haven't seen before. And then once they've seen it, oh, it's blasé. I want to see the next thing. That's the nature of fashion. Yeah. So we need to stick to our guns and embrace the community that got there with us because they're always going to ride out for us. Like whether, you know, whether we're white hot or not, that, that core consumer that we're speaking to hopefully will always be there for us. And, and that's the way we sort of think about you know, our business and, and how we move forward. Right. For sure. Yeah, I mean, that's Nepenthes to me in, in a nutshell. Exactly. It's like, exactly. they don't really care whether, I mean, they like ASAP Rocky, I'm sure, but they're not like, like oh, darn it, you know, we, we, have, to, we have to make sure that, you know, Matt Henson and ASAP's going to, like, get our stuff. Like, <laughs> I don't even think they care, <laughs> which well, is great. Well, they're, they're in the zone. I guarantee they didn't go to, the, to ASAP. They, ASAP no. came to them. Yeah, like, yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, and, and, and that's the other thing, not to, to, to take anything from needles, but those track pants that are popping... We had those in the store for years, and no one cared. <laughs> and now you, you can't keep them off the shelf. And I mean, you know, they're a beautiful product, and it took a few people to get them, you know, in the limelight. But that speaks to the same thing. Like, you know, the designer didn't say, oh, these things are not selling right or whatever. They're not, I'm not going to do it. He kept on doing it. That's right. And everyone yeah. else came around to him, and now, you know, now they're doing a collaboration. So it's, I think it's a beautiful thing. It couldn't have happened to a better company or better team. And, um, and even long after the dust settles after this collaboration, it's still going to be grinding. You know, it's still going to be doing their thing. So, um, so it's great to see stuff like that, you know, in this, in this world of hype and, you know, and, and, you know, fly-by-night operations. It's good to see people that kind of trudge along, you know, the, the tortoise and the hare that just kind of keep on the path. Yeah. Um, That's awesome. Um, in terms of like getting your product, right? So like, say you're listening to this and you're like, I want to get this stuff. I want it. I don't think you guys have any sort of direct to consumer store now, do you? Um, like our own store? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just our website has, has pieces on there. Okay. Um, But like in terms of, of like future collections and stuff, is that a model that you want to keep on there? Um, our own, like, Uh, I'm sorry to have your own e-commerce and do direct to consumer in addition to yeah, I mean, I, I think every, just as the, um, the show, so we just, like Abdul said, like, we thought of it like, if you like a band, you're going to want to go to that band's concert. If you like our brand, you're, you're going to want to go to our show. It's a physical experience of that thing that you're into. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the, 
the store suits kind of the same purpose. If you are really into a certain brand, like I remember like coming to New York for my second time, there's certain stores where you're like, I really want to go to that store. Like even my first time, I really want to go to Nike town because I wanted to experience physically whatever Nike is in a, in a, in a five story brick building on 57th street or whatever. And, um, I think if you're into Abbasi Rosbro, eventually, um, we'd love to have that experience, which mm-hmm. we, cause we kind of can, you know, from the, you saw with the show, we consider lighting and atmosphere and we're probably into theatrics a little bit. And I think the store would incorporate those elements and you would also be able to, you know, see the product there. We're starting to wrap up too, but is there, is there any other stuff you guys would like to discuss at or mention or? Just, um, it's, you know, people, and, and a lot of people have talked about this, but like, what is luxury in 2018? And luxury no longer means like a fur leather bag with gold trim or, or whatever maybe in our, in our minds is luxury. It means um, something rare and, and covetable or something yeah, that's hard. Something you can't get. Something which is you why can't stadium get. goods is downstairs. Yeah. And palace. Yeah, and palace. Know? Yeah, exactly. And, and the whole Supreme model is built on that. And, um, and so, you know, and, and what's I think really exciting about that model is you strip away all those, you know, terms and it's like sustainability is what it, what's really exciting about it. The stuff that you're going to covet, you're not going to throw into the garbage after you've worn it. You're going to put it onto Grailed and try to resell it. You're going to take care of it because you know that it has a longer life besides just you wearing it 15 times or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, um, you know, we really like that idea. And like, I think we're trying to, you know, we've been basing our business around that too. Everything's made in New York City. It's all, you know, uh, small batch production, I guess you could say. Um, Stuff's limited edition. We use the dead stock fabric. So that's uh, fabric that every season we go to warehouses around the city there's hundreds of thousands of these yards of fabric, which are from old designer overproduction. Oh, I did not know this. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, and there's, uh, you know, so like say Ralph Lauren, for example, cut a coat in 1996 and they had 4,000 extra yards like of fabric from maybe they had had a 40,000 uh, yard originally and they had some extra. So there's factories here that called like jobbers or agents that um, will just buy up that fabric and they store it to resell it at a later date. And so all that stuff just kind of sits on these shelves for decades and it's still there. And it's, um, so as a, so what we kind of like to do, and it, it was a lesson actually from, from Daiki of, you know, we were having a, a hard time sourcing fabrics from Italy because they just become extraordinarily expensive once you ship them back in and everything mm-hmm. into the U S and make them. So he said, check out these dead stock warehouses. And so you go out there, you find these, these gems, you'll, you know, you're digging through stuff, literally, um, you know, it's stuff that's been covered over by dust and you're kind of brushing it off and finding these amazing, you know, we're looking for natural fibers. So wool fabrics, linen fabrics, cotton fabrics, cashmere fabrics. And then whatever you find, so if you find a roll of 150 yards, that whatever that production run is, it's already set in stone. You'll mm-hmm. never make, if, it's a, if a shirt is two yards of fabric, you have 150 yards, you're making 75 of that shirt and it'll never be cut again. It's, that's what it is. And I think that's really exciting in a way as a, as a designer because it's, it's sustainable, it's covetable, it's upcycling, um, it's limited edition, it's, you know, it should be ungrailed one day because it's, it's from this thing that can only be done once. And, it, mm-hmm. you know, we're not going to ever recreate that. We can't recreate that fabric as it is. So anyway, um, I like that the world is moving towards that. And people, I think, from my perspective, want to know where stuff is made, yeah. have an inkling of how it was made, and also want to know that this is going to preserve value. I, I Myself as a consumer, I don't buy anything that I don't think I could put on Grailed in two years. Because why? Why would you buy like something that's just going to be like, <laughs> yeah, I'll probably just give it to Goodwill. Like, 
that's no longer an option. I think you want to do something that, or I want to buy something that I feel like that. So anyhow, that's something we've been discussing a good bit recently is hopefully the world is moving towards that in a bigger way because. Well, it's going to have to. I mean, I just read an article on how, um, you know, fast fashion is responsible for, you know, so much pollution and it's just, it's really a problem. And yeah, the, it's it's all you know life and and in our experience is all about the pendulum right it swings from one direction to the other and i think you know we've kind of been on this high of like cheap clothes disposable whatever but i think as we get more conscious and aware we're kind of going back the other direction i mean and this is ironic but like one of my favorite places to eat is sweet green right i don't know if you're a sweet green <laughs> oh i know sweet green but sweet green if you haven't been you should check it out because harvest bowl man hey i'm true mommy <laughs> i'm on all, that harvest bowl all day all the time true mommy all day but the <laughs> but you go there in lunchtime and there's a line around the corner. And if you would have told my 10-year-old self that people would be lining up to get salads <laughs> instead of going to McDonald's, I would, have, I would have looked at you like you're crazy. And I think it's a paradigm shift in the way that young people are thinking. They're like, yeah, I can go get a cheap hamburger or I can stuff myself full of nutrients. In, you know what I mean? And there's yeah. all these you know, sweet green and all these knockoffs. But I think the same thing is going to happen in fashion. You know, you had, fa- you had fast food, you have slow food. You have fast fashion, you have slow fashion. So I yeah. think the more conscious people become of the way clothing are disposed of and made and how toxic and how much water, you know, cotton takes, they're going to realize that, Hey, like, let's look the other way. Let's look at something that's a bit more sustainable, something that's a bit more eco-friendly, something that's a little little bit more considered. And I think what happens is the industry starts to react to that. You Mm -hmm. know, 10 years ago, there was no such thing as gluten-free. Now everything's (laughs) gluten-free, you know, because it's like, (laughs) no one cares if it's gluten-free or not. They're just like, I can make money if this is gluten-free, so make a gluten-free version. So H&M and Zara is going to be like, well, it's, we don't care about, you know, sustainability, but if that's going to help us sell more clothing, we're going to make sustainable clothes because, you know what I mean? Because it's capitalism. So, so the point is, is that we can we can lead that change by making better choices, and and I think Abbasi Rosbro is just a small company trying to do that. But if bigger companies start to take a little bit of what we do, source dead stock fabrics, reuse fabrics they already have, and make something that is a little bit more covetable, it will make a huge impact on the way that you know the environment's affected and the way people shop. Yeah. So so anyway, I don't know where yeah. I'm going with no, that. No, no, that, I mean that's <laughs> it, you're right. I, I think like that's something that has to be on the tip of everyone's tongue when they're shopping. And it's a question I feel that people need to ask. And it's not being on a high horse. Mm -hmm. It's not trying to be better than someone. It's like, no, this is a, this should be a conscious effort that you should ask yourself is what you're wearing. Like, is it sustainable? Like how much waste was created for you to get that? Mm -hmm. You know? And so I think that's in, if the model is like what you were saying too, and that you, you want to have it and you want to have it for a while. And then yeah, you're selling it on grail. I mean, there's two editors I know to where I won't name them, but I'm sure they'll hear this, but like their, their goal of 2018 is to not buy anything new. But the funny thing is they're actually buying just as much as what they usually buy. They're just not buying new clothes. No, I think that's amazing. Yeah. That's they're, amazing. they're selling stuff on real, real and grailed. And, and that's like, that's their tip. Cause some of these people do want to be a little bit chameleon like, and they want to change some of their, you know, some of the looks that they have. Uh, but I mean, it's so that that's yeah. interesting. Well, and I think like um, one thing I always tell Abdul, uh, furniture-wise. So like you know, you're getting your in New York. You know, we're we're moving apartments every few years. Yeah. You move someplace, and of course you're automatically well. Do I should I go to IKEA or should I not? You know, I really don't (laughs) want to. Do I want laminate wood? Yeah, but I just I need something. But um, when I was when I was living in Bed Stuy, there was this. um, Anybody who's in Brooklyn, go to this guy. He's on. uh, 
I think Bedford's in Tompkins called Bedford Gow. It's an antique store. Okay. And they have an amazing selection of mid-century modern antiques. This table that we're, we're talking at is one yeah, of them. Yeah, the table and chairs I'm sitting on is like, this is so I got pretty th- nice, man. This, so this <laughs> is from this guy. I, I recover. I had to reupholster the chairs with some of our collection fabrics, actually, from uh, the Fall 15 collection. But um, <laughs> that is, but this was this was a, awesome. a, a This table was cheaper than the IKEA table. This was like a three hundred dollar table. The chairs were like a hundred bucks each. I mean, anyway. So same as not having to buy new clothes, you can also not have to buy new furniture, not other things. There's stuff yeah. that's quality made that you, mm-hmm. can, if you kind of just take an extra step to say, okay, I'm not going to go IKEA. I can look at a couple flea markets. You're probably gonna have cooler stuff anyway. Mm-hmm. Same as if you you don't have to always buy new clothes. You can go to the flea market. You can go to you know an, yeah. Uh, yeah, vintage, vintage store and, military surplus, all um, that sort of stuff. But like uh, one other thing I was gonna say just in regards to this. So sure. um, last week I went back to um, University of Arizona where I went to school and I was just talking to some of the entrepreneurship students there because now I guess I've got enough years under my belt of like they're like okay come back and impart some knowledge on <laughs> all these right guys. you're successful okay <laughs> <laughs> well i don't know if we're successful but we're doing something right and um anyway so i'm you know i'm up there and i'm like look you guys you know the sky's the limit you can do anything you want if you're in tucson you can get into the fashion industry or any other industry you want i'm trying to just be inspirational because i think that's the most important thing and how i got from where you guys are sitting to where i am and at the end they had this question and answer time and this kid raised his hand he's like i just googled your company your shoes are $500 and your shirts are $200. How do you, how do you think anybody's going to afford this clothing? Like, what do you think your future, your business looks like? Oh, man. And I, I, and I was like, that's, I, I gave respect to the kids. That's a great question is because I, I've lived in New York too long that those prices don't shock me a little bit. But I also said back to him, we also have to remember that these are clothing, th- this stuff that we're making is made in America. Like, this is made in the country that you live in think the, that it's kind of strange that you can't afford clothing made in the country that you live in. Like that, you, if you kind of zoom out and think about the bigger picture, like why is it that most people can only afford clothing made in far third world countries? It, it should be a question you're asking yourself as you're shopping. Like maybe I should, you know, it, what, what economies of scale have worked out for that to occur? And anyway, that's it's, a great response. Yeah. Um, and, and he was like, okay, thanks. You know, and I don't know. <laughs> probably still was like, I'm never buying like, this. Sit shit. down, son. <laughs> oh, I, I no, give him credit for asking questions. It's always, it's always intimidating to ask questions. But um, anyway, but I, I, it was a good, it's a good thing that it's just a dialogue that we need to be having is uh, why are things costing this much? Should a shirt really, you know, cost uh, $9.99 at, at Zara? Like, what what person had to suffer to make that right. accessible to you at that price point? And that's, you know, of course, you don't ever get to meet that person and they're far removed from your life, but um, they are a real person somewhere out there. There is no magical machine that makes clothes. Every single stitch of every garment at H&M and Zara and Abbasi Rosman, every other company is, is sewn by a person. Um, not hand sewn, but th- sewn through a sewing machine. Sure. Right. Um, so anyway, I think that's just something to reflect on that these are, you know, whether it's a, a building or a car or a, or a piece of clothing, that there's, there's a person behind this. And, mm-hmm. you know, how does your consumption choice affect their, their lives? It's that constant question you have to ask yourself, like, how is what you're doing impacting the rest of the world? Yeah, and yeah. with the world as small as it is, I mean, you have to be asking that. For yeah. sure, for sure. And I, I think one really great thing about the, the times that we currently live in is, that we, of course, we had the industrial revolution way back when. We have the technological revolution that we're kind of still involved with. but um, but we're also in the midst of this like well-being or sanctity oh, yeah. of human revolution. I don't know yeah. what it is, but wellness or healthy something. Healthy boy life. Healthy, yeah, healthy boy <laughs> life. <laughs> HBL for short. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, but it's because, you know, I feel like, you know, it's 
it's very common to meet someone and you're, you're asking about the yoga class. You ask about their, you know, their <laughs> mental health therapist. You're asking yeah. about like what, what organic food they're eating. You're, you know, talking about sustainable clothing. Like the fact that all these conversations happening means that something bigger is going on in, mm. in our lives. And I think that's true. Yeah. It's a great thing. I, I think it's, a, it's, it's great that we're caring about ourselves again. And we're not just part of this industrial complex that sort of cares less about humans. And, and if you get cancer and you're 40 and you die, it's, it's no big deal. It's part of the, fallout but um so anyway so i mean that's kind of i think mm-hmm. we exist in this time period we're thinking about these things it's part of that that collective dialogue that we're all kind of thinking about we have a facet that might be clothing but other you know the farmers think in the same way but he's growing carrots and tomatoes and 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 other people in different industries well yeah and i, I think just to piggyback off of that because people when we talk about the future i think the most futuristic thing is actually going back to nature like Every step that we take towards, you know, technologically advanced society and all these things, I think is one step into dystopian past. Mm-hmm. Nature is perfect. The, the universe is perfect. It's a symphony of, you know, the highest, you know, order. And I think this notion of wellness and this notion of eating organic and this notion of, you know, circadian rhythms, that's all, that's natural. You know, mm-hmm. you go to, you know, the Serengeti or whatever, whatever, animals are there, totally fine. It's a, it's a food chain. It's whatever. It's a cycle. Um, it's an ecosystem. So it's hard. To, it's, it's very difficult to pull yourself out of all this, like, excitement and all these advances that we're making. But when you realize the bigger picture, you realize that, we're, A, we're all connected. B, that, you know, wellness and, and, and love and all these, not to get all kumbaya, but like the essence of humanity is that we are natural beings that belong to the same, you know, ecosystem as our fellow um, animals and trees and whatever. So, um, so I think that's where we're, hopefully where we're going, you know, I hope we can wean ourselves off of all this convenience and all this technological advancement and get back to just existing in, well, in, in conversations and, and. Yeah, being humans again. yeah, and just yeah. living in concert with everything else that that's natural. Because that's beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. No, I'm but, serious. But you yeah. know what I mean, like because it's like it's never enough. Like your iPhone five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You got ten million in the bank. You got ten. So what? Ten billion? It's not enough. It's never enough. Yeah. You know, capitalism. The the chase for more, the chase for better, is never enough. So just stop it and just go back to the essence. You know. Yeah. Um, like. Jim Carrey has said a bunch of times before that he's like, I hope that everyone gets to uh, have their wildest dreams achieved so they can understand that it does not fulfill. Them. Yeah, exactly. Because mm-hmm. he, exactly. you know, I mean, he wrote his famous thing is he wrote himself a $10 million check before, you know, he ever made it. And he was like, I'm going to make this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to live this life. I'm going to have this house in Malibu. He got everything. And then he was like, I am depressed as shit. Wow. <laughs> yep. He was yep. like, it's not fulfilling. Yep. So, yep. yep. Anyway. Yeah, I just was reading that uh, a, a book, uh, Ray Dalio, the investor um, here in town, uh, wrote, just wrote a, or I guess it came out maybe four or five months ago, called Principles. It's a great book. It has work principles and, and business principles in there. But he said the same exact thing. He's like, if you have you know, a nice bed to sleep on, you have nourishing food, you have people around you that you care about, that will bring you no matter what the most fulfillment. It's not going to be ever about making a billion dollars. Of course, there's initial like highs from doing that yeah. but it wears off pretty pretty quickly mm-hmm. yeah so anyway stay grounded i guess the moral yeah. of that story yeah that's awesome well no this was really good guys thank you so much for taking the time to come on yeah, and it uh pleasure. it was a pleasure speaking with you yeah cheers yeah. Thanks, thank Jeremy. you all right later you've been listening to blamo our theme music is by tan lines if you like this episode there's plenty more to dive into at blamopod.com 
Listen to Blammo on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're at it, leave a review. It helps let others know and discover the show. Follow us on Instagram at Blammo Podcast or send me an email at jeremy at blammopod.com. See you next week.